0: You and I are going to die because, you see, the Bible teaches that you and I have a body. But you, the real you, your intelligence, your memory, your personality is going to live forever and ever. You will never die. And you're going to spend a million years, a billion years in one of two places. morning everybody morning. Special welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time. Just want to let you know real quick that uh, if you are at all inclined at eight a m there 's about three hundred seats open i 'm just saying i 'm just saying at eleven there 's maybe one hundred and fifty so I know you 're nine thirty crew you 're you're, you're, you're here that 's wonderful but if you can make the shift that 'd be great by the grace of God the first uh, four Sundays in June have outpaced the first four Sundays in January in terms of attendance. And so looking toward the fall, we're just trying to make the right decisions. So we know that a lot of our guests, we always want to be able to accommodate our guests, usually come at 9.30, 11 o'clock service. So you heard me say it before, donuts are fresher, (laughs) ice is colder, you know. All right, so here's where we're at. We continue our series on heaven, hell, today we have the joyous occasion of continuing where we left off last week. Last week we looked at Jesus' words about heaven. And the way I wanna set uh, set up sort of this part two is by bringing you a verse that seems very odd. It's like you read it and it doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. Let me bring it to you. It's interesting. If you open up your Bible, it's like right, right in the middle. So right in the middle, you find this verse. It's from Psalm 116. It says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Two words that you don't often associate with each other. Death and precious. Question, how in the world can you define death as being precious? Well, I'll tell you, because the answer is quite simple. Death is precious only if you know where you're going when you die. There isn't a person in this room that hasn't had the thought, what's next, if anything? And if there is, what, what is it like? You know, for, for many years of my life, I, I, I had a lot of questions. I, I was like a hardcore skeptic until I became open-minded and open-hearted enough to examine the claims of Jesus, specifically surrounding his resurrection, because if Jesus was raised from the dead, everything he said about himself was true. Every word he uttered had to be true if, in fact, he came back from the dead. There is a mountain of evidence to support this, and if you don't know that, I would encourage you, if you are open-minded, if you truly are, People say they are. If you're truly open-minded and open-hearted, see for yourself. See where the evidence leads you. So Jesus talked about this, this place after death, talked about it in a few places. We read it last week. I'll read it again in John chapter 14. He said, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. So I will come again and will take you to myself so that we may be together. So The Bible uses the word heaven to describe three different locations, okay? First, the word is used to describe that that space wherein the birds fly and the the clouds float, our atmosphere. That's the, the first heaven. Also uses the word heaven to describe space beyond that, like outer space, where the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the universe, That's the second use of the word heaven. The third use of the word heaven, though, and the way that Jesus used it most was to describe the place where God dwells. Very often, he would say, our Father in heaven or your Father in heaven, the place where God dwells. Exactly where is this place? Well, the indication is that it's up and beyond. That's about all we can say. God is not bound by the universe, but sits outside the universe. So as Jesus is using the word, this is what He's referring to the Bible is also very clear in telling us that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, this is where the language of the Bible gets super interesting and explains a lot of what we experience because the Bible actually says that the planet has an awareness, and the awareness is that. It was created for something more, something different. The planet itself, all of creation, has this anticipation of something better coming. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8. He says, for the creation waits with this eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The sons of God refers to God's people, those who have placed their faith and trust in And Jesus. Those are the people of God or the family of God. And so the earth is anticipating a recreated humanity for the people of God. But there's more. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, this Greek word futility is fascinating. It describes something that is warped or twisted. So your house floods, you have wood floors. The water dries, but what happens to the wood? It's twisted, it's warped. Paul says that the earth understands that it is not as God intended. Something happened. If you read the language of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, sin enters the world and even the earth itself is fractured, it's marred. The earth has this understanding. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him that would be God who subjected it. So. God allowed the earth to suffer these, these this warpness, these sort of creation pains as a result of the fall of man. Not willingly, but, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from this bondage, this corruption, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Not only will the children of God be recreated, but the earth expects it to be created itself to be created, recreated. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, and then you get this, this, this word picture, in the pains of childbirth until now. The pains of childbirth. So, so, so imagine a woman who's nine months pregnant and you're staring at her belly and then all of a sudden what do you see? A little foot pushes out. A little fist balls up and it, and you can just, you see the movement and what's that telling you? Oh, there's change about to happen. Something special is about to be born. That's the imagery that that Paul uses for the earth itself, that it has this awareness. Things are not as they were supposed to be, as God originally intended. It's like every time we plant a body in the ground, the earth is groaning like, we weren't created. We weren't created for this. The planet was not meant to absorb a human body. Death was not an original part of God's design, but because of what mankind chose in the garden, it entered the world. And so now we plant those bodies in the ground. And the earth has a sense that no, this is not as it should be. And it awaits this rebirth, not only the earth, but of course, ourselves. And not only the creation, he goes on, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. It's like we're these orphans, waiting for adoption, waiting to be placed in a family. That is the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now. Hope that is seen is not hope. If you hope for something, it's like, it's an anticipation of what is to come. There's some element of uncertainty to it. So if you see it, then there's no use in hoping for it. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. In the context, it's this hope that our bodies will be made different. We hope, that's our hope, for who hopes for what he actually sees. We haven't experienced it yet. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Let me tell you about three things in life. You've got faith, hope, and love. Then he goes on to say, you know of these three, which is the greatest? Love, why? Well, faith is trust in God's word and his promises that he will fulfill what he says. So until that fulfillment takes place in the life to come, we exercise faith. Same thing with hope. Hope is this this optimistic expectation of better things. So until until we're in the presence of those things, we have faith and hope. But when we are experiencing the fullness of those things, the reality of of those things in the life to come, there won't be a need for faith and hope in that sense, but we will still be loving one another. That's why he goes on to say love never ends. Of those three, love is the greatest. So question now is um, when? If the current heavens and earth are passing away, when exactly does all this take place? Well, 2 Peter chapter three, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So there's your answer. Someone comes in and steals your stuff. Well, thieves will approach in a way that is covert and undercover, not to be seen or anticipated. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. No one will anticipate it. And then, look at this, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, this is judgment language. That's why God can't turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that are done. There is a day of judgment coming. Everything will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Christian, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. So oftentimes I'm asked, do you ever teach on end times? And I'm like, yeah, I've taught through the book of Revelation. But here's what I want people to know. I'm not really hung up on end times. <laughs> I'm not really into um, the specifics, to be quite honest with you. And the reason why is because Jesus didn't seem to be. He was consumed with something else, though, and I'll explain it in a second. But let me just speak to the book of Revelation, because people are really into that. And for good reason. They actually... Um, they actually missed the forest for the trees. What I mean by that is this. You know what the full title of the book of Revelation is? The full, the full title? It's not the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book. The word revelation means to reveal. So unless you're reading it and discovering things about Jesus that you didn't know before, you're not actually understanding the book. So it's not about dates and times and epics and ages and things like that. That's not actually the the, the actual point of the book. It's like, hey, what are we understanding about Jesus that we didn't know before? So without the book of Revelation, we just see Jesus as this sort of meek and mild you know, child in this nativity scene, and it's really sweet and gentle. Then all of a sudden you get to the book of Revelation and Jesus starts to flex. It's not meek and mild. It's like king riding a war horse with a sword dipped in blood, Judgment. See the first picture is it just kind of warms your heart. The second picture it just all of a sudden it provides some motivation for purity. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, don't play me for a fool. Don't play me for a fool. So when you read the book of Revelation, according to Jesus, even himself, he says, you know, I, I'm not. I don't even know the date, the time of exact time of my own return. But I will tell you this, when he's asked, you know what he does? If you read the text carefully, then he starts launching into a series of parables and he's like, well, let me tell you. Hey, it's gonna be like this. And he tells a parable about these 10 virgins, about these this this bride, a series of parables. And here's the point of the parables, be ready, be ready. Don't get fixated on some of these details. You know? I'm not saying they're not important and they're interesting, we can, we can, we can speculate and maybe some, some things aren't as crystal clear as we would want them to be. But here's one thing that is crystal clear. Jesus is saying, Live your life as if I'm coming back in the next minute. That's what I want you to know. Be ready. You're living in this constant state of readiness. In the meantime, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness a new heavens and a new a new earth revelation does reveal the fact that there will be a new city as well and this city is quite interesting it's called the new jerusalem now jerusalem has always been the city of god it's where the great king david served and in the book of revelation the revelation of jesus christ was being revealed is what this city looks like as the eternal home of the people of God. And the language is is quite uh, compelling. Here's the description. Revelation chapter 21. John, as he gets this vision, he says, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, "'for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, "'and the sea was no more. "'And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, notice that word, as a bride adorned for her husband. That's why I began by saying in John chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. I think this, in large part, is that place. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. All right, so this is super, super important because we're going to get this radical description of what this place looks like, the city. But you have to understand that the way it is first described is as the dwelling place of God and man together. Because the language we're about to read, I suspect, has everything to do with getting into the mind of a first century Jew who understood in their context, when they heard the words, the dwelling place of God, they're thinking one thing, and what is that? The temple, the temple. Now the temple was this beautifully adorned, there was nothing like the temple. The temple was designed to be like the, the majesty of God. It is the place where, where man met with God, and there was this really special place in the back called the Holy of Holies, where the priests would go once a year, and meet with the presence of God to absolve the sins of the people. It was beautifully adorned, nothing like it, absolutely magnificent. And so when the reader hears that God is dwelling with his people, immediately they're thinking, oh, that's temple language, that's where God, God God dwells with people in the temple. It's like, okay, yeah, you're tracking with me, but here's the deal. In this new city, there is no temple. There is no temple structure. And so what that means is that wherever you go, you are in God's presence. He is dwelling with you in this new city. And then you, you get this. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So John is trying to use human language to describe what is otherworldly. And he's like, it's kind of like this precious gemstone. It's kind of like this one, and it had a high, great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, there are three gates. So this appears to be in the shape of a cube, possibly a prism, probably more like a cube. And on each side of the walls, there are three gates. And on these gates, there are inscriptions, and there are also angels at these gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, which makes perfect sense because earlier in Matthew chapter 19, the guys are like, hey, we have left everything to follow you. What do we get? And Jesus says, you're gonna reign with me. You'll have a special place of privilege. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. So the city lies four square. So its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Stadia is a, a unit of measurement. Its length So look at this, it's length and width and the height are all the same. 12,000 stadia is roughly 1400 miles. 1400 miles long, 1400 miles wide, and 1400 miles high equates to roughly two million square miles. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So a cubit was the span from your wrist to your elbow roughly 18 inches, which puts the wall at about uh, 200 feet thick. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Here we go. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the 10th chrysoprase, the 11th jacinth. the 12th amethyst, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So if the walls are, these walls are massive, they're super thick, imagine a gate carved from one pearl. Streets, pure gold, like transparent glass. So let me throw this pick up here of some gemstones. So this is I think what John is trying to portray, by the way, Every wall has its foundation. This is what the foundation of the wall looks like just in and of itself. It's made up of of these gemstones, just the foundation of the wall. The rest of the wall is made out of jasper. So again, John is trying to put words to something he has never seen or experienced before. But there's more. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. In Ezekiel chapter 10, he tries to describe the vision he receives of God's throne room, and it's like, I I give up. He's like, forget about it. He's trying to put it into words, and and he can't. You can read it on your own, Ezekiel chapter 10. It's like hard for him to put in human words what God's throne is like. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, there's this tree, and this might sound familiar. It's the tree of life. It has 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. This is like some kind of otherworldly fruit of the month club kind of tree. (laughs) But what's interesting now is as, as we get into these details, perhaps it's reminding you of some language that you've read elsewhere in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that the Bible begins and the Bible ends with the same kind of imagery? Because in the Garden of Eden, there is also a tree of life. And in the summation of this newly created heavens and earth, there is a recreated Garden of Eden, but even better. Now it's interesting this tree of life it's planted next to this river that's known as the river of life. And what happens with trees is they take up the nutrients from what's around it. So isn't that, that's kind of a cool picture. Here's this tree planted by the river of life. So as its roots take up the water, what kind of water is it taking up? Water of life. And then it gets really interesting because there, there are these, these, these leaves that are supernatural. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So in the original garden you have this tree and you have humans, but you only have two. You have Adam and Eve. Now, in this recreated garden, you have the tree of life, but then you have more than two humans. You have what is described as nations. It's the same, but uh, better. Now, let's ask some, some questions. Um, Because the existence of heaven for us, what will it be like? Well, it's described as having at least seven no mores. I I counted at least seven. Let me me give them to you. Uh, There will be no more sea, no more death, no more mourning, no more weeping, no more pain, no more curse, and no more night. Free from evil, sin, sickness, suffering, and death. Similar to the current earth, but without the curse of sin. So what will it be like for us in our personal experience there. So, we're gonna speculate a little bit because we don't have a ton of details uh, about this, um, but I think there are some things that, um, that we can suggest based on what the scriptures say. Uh, there's described this marriage feast that takes place, this massive banquet, which tells us that we will be eating. You know, if Jesus' resurrected body is some indication of what we'll be like, when he came back, he was the same but not, not exactly. You know? He wasn't completely recognizable, but he shared a meal with his followers on several occasions. And so there's this meal that gets laid. Now, here's a lot, of, a lot of interesting questions that flow from this, right? There's gonna be a, a lot of them. Um, will there be barbecue in heaven? Anybody else thinking that? <laughs> will there be barbecue in heaven? Well, here's, here's where, again, it gets interesting. There's no more death in heaven. And so if there isn't death in heaven, something has to die in order for you to cook it up. And, Eat it. Perhaps, no barbecue. <laughs> just just hang with me, just wait a second. Just hang with me, I'm bringing this up for a reason, okay. <laughs> what about sex? It's funny, because of all the groups in the church, the Cornerstone group, our 55 plus group, asked me this question, will there be sex in heaven? <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> well, God designed sex to be this celebration, this amazing sort of glue, if you will, between a husband and a wife within the commitment of marriage. Sex outside of commitment always, it's a smoke screen now, don't fool yourself. In heaven, we're told there is no marriage but we'll be like the angels. The angels don't procreate. There's a fixed number of them, okay? So, I'm not so sure about the barbecue. There won't be any sex. Right now, some of you are like, what's the alternative again? (laughs) Let me tell you why I bring this up, okay? Sometimes I have FOMO. You know what I'm talking about? I have a fear of missing out. Sometimes that's very real. I have FOMO. Like, I don't want to miss out on stuff. Like I love being a part of things. I love new experiences. I've even thought. I was telling Julia today, man. I've never been to Paris. I'd love to be. I'd love to go to Paris or parts of the world that I would love to, to explore. Any earthly experience you currently have is is such a fake compared to what you will experience in heaven. It is such a cheap knockoff. You have no idea. You are settling for something that is so base, so low. The things that drive you the most on this planet in your fallenness will be such a thing of the past. And the fact that you are hung up on those things tells you just how misguided you are. See, you don't have a clue. The Bible says no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart can even imagine what the author, creator, and sustainer of all things has in store for you. I mentioned it last week without going into detail. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist. I think he's one of the best and brightest that are out there. He's a Christian. He writes a book, Beyond the Cosmos. He talks about the extra dimensionality of God based on string theory. We are limited, limited in, our <laughs> in this earthly existence to three dimensions, height, width, and depth. Could it be that God exists on an infinite amount of planes? I think that's quite possible. And I think that's why we don't get this rich, full detailed description of what life will be like because we're so trapped on this fallen planet in this (laughs) depraved state that is so very tiny in its capabilities. What is to come is so much better. Any, any earthly experience we have, such a disappointment in comparison to what will be. It's described as a place of no more suffering, just that, no more heartache, no more pain. Matthew Stanford Robinson was born with a disability because at birth, the oxygen was cut. He survived, wasn't expected to live, but he ended up surviving, and he was severely disabled as a young boy. He was in a wheelchair, confined to a wheelchair. Eventually, at 10 years old, he died. His father, created a remarkable monument for him at his gravesite and this is what it looks like do you understand do you understand the boy is leaping out of that chair because In this place, you will be seeing, feeling, experiencing things you can't even imagine. can't even imagine the fullness of. In Alcorn's book, On Heaven, he says, could it be like this? In this new city, you walk up to let's say an orange tree, and you pluck an orange. Something as simple as this. This, you pluck an orange. You begin to peel it, and immediately you are hit with the smell. I don't know how else to say it it other than to say this. You are hit with the smell of the orangiest orange (laughs) you've ever encountered. In fact, you're like, I've never, this is what an orange smells like? I've never smelled this before. I had a faint, faint, faint glimpse of it and then you take a bite, and you're like, oh. It's it's the perfection of orange. Just a small example. So there's some real implications here and now, and I mentioned it last week, right? Repetition is the mother of learning. I'm gonna say it again. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on this earth, because they're temporary, Everything you own is gonna be in someone else's hands. My mom passed away a couple years ago. She had mountains of memories that she kept that belonged to her. I kept maybe four pictures. Her entire life stored, I kept four pictures. In two, three generations, I will be forgotten. I'll be the velvet painting on the wall hallway somewhere around here. (laughs) Who's that guy? I don't know. I don't know. You know. Let's go to church. That'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? And and we're going to compare. Well, let me just close by by reading you this. Okay. This is Paul's summation of it. Right, Romans chapter eight. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be be revealed to us. So why would you lay up treasures here on earth? Don't feel like you're missing out. You don't feel like you won't, there's nothing that will compare to your experience in heaven. So you wanna live today in light of eternity. You wanna make the most, that's why Jesus said, hey, I'm not gonna give you dates and times and here's what you need to know, be ready. Let people know that there is a way into this place and it's not the way they think because everybody thinks you. Let me tell you this, this is gonna blow some of your minds. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it talk about going to heaven when you die. Did you know that? You won't find that phrase anywhere in the Bible and for good reason. It's not about the place, it's about the person. I'll give you a quick illustration, I'll end with this. Let's suppose that you have a loved one and they're being held hostage. And you get these letters, and there's nothing you can do. We have the person you love, there's nothing you can do to release them. And year after year goes by and you become just more and more desperate. And then finally you receive an email one day and it's from the US government. It says, hey, we know about the hostage situation and we're starting to negotiate, and all of a sudden your heart starts to lift a little bit, and you're like, okay, could this be? Another couple years go by, and then you get the confirmation, it's happening. We've negotiated, we've got your loved one, and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna arrange for the two of you to meet in Hawaii, and we're gonna pay for everything for two weeks so you can catch up on all the things that you've missed over the years. Well, when you hear that, you're gonna think, well, 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 that's great, but the most important part is that I'm going to see the person and be with them. The fact that it's in Hawaii, we'd all love to be there right now. It's gonna be like 105 today. Okay? Hawaii's a beautiful place. It's a distant second to the fact that you're gonna be with the person that you love. They could say to you, good news, We've, we've, we've secured the release of your loved one. Bad news, the reunion's gonna be in Gila Bend. <laughs> you could care less. You know how fast you drive to Gila Bend? No offense against Gila Bend. Someone t- told me the other day that population's growing. They're at like 37 now. <laughs> the place is secondary. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, go to heaven when you die. That's why over and over, when Jesus referred to heaven, what did he say? Hey, your father's there. My father's there. Didn't you stand? So, though, these are the, the these are the implications of heaven here and now for you. Yeah, we need to pray, Father. It's uh, yeah, it's too good to be true. Not only just the thought of the place that you have prepared for us, but the way there. And this is where Jesus plays his irreplaceable part in coming to this earth, taking all of our wrongs upon himself, dying in our place. The wages of sin is death. That's how serious it is. And that actually ends up being a good thing because it tells us that You don't turn a blind eye towards all the wrongs that are done. You're a God of justice. You're bound by your nature. You must bring justice to bear. And so the problem is we all fall under that justice, but through the death of Jesus, he takes our judgment upon himself. And in return, we get eternal life in your presence. Father, I pray for those that are in the room that might be far from you. Maybe there's some doubts. Lord, I understand that completely. Pray that you'd continue to use your word, your spirit, your people, to keep massaging on all of our hearts, Lord. Help us to live as if we really believe that place exists and that we're gonna be there before we know it. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ. God's people said,